What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. And I'm sure, as a lot of you guys know, because I won't shut up about it, my debut book came out on December 26th. And to say I've been stressed about it would probably be the understatement of the century. I've been hustling nonstop, and if we're being really vulnerable and honest, I have had some pretty bad, spiraling negative thoughts. Things like, what if no one buys the book? Or even worse, what if someone spends their hard-earned money on the book and then hates it or thinks it's stupid? What if I actually wrote a really shitty book? But one of my New Year's resolutions is to help get my anxious thoughts and negative attitude under control and listen. I'm not always negative. Actually, I consider myself an optimist. But when I get so stressed, I tend to see and then prepare for the worst possible outcomes. So you could say I struggle with being positive when it really matters, even though I know in my brain that I have so much to be thankful and grateful for. And realistically, my worst case scenarios aren't even legit. Which is why today's guest is going to teach us all a little something about living better, staying more positive and optimistic, and managing our thought processes. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, clinical assistant professor at NYU Langone Hospital, and the author of the upcoming book, Practical Optimism. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Sue Varma. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you so much for being here. So we've been friends and mutuals on IG for a while now, and so obviously I've stalked your pages, but for all of the listeners who don't have the pleasure of knowing you yet, like, Explain to us, what do you do for a living? Yeah, so I'm a psychiatrist, and the thing that makes me the happiest is seeing patients. So I work one-on-one with people. Um, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. If they need medications for depression, anxiety, OCD, I help them with that. I also do couples counseling. I work with families. So the clinical stuff is like one part of what I do. Um, When I first finished training in psychiatry, so it was like 12 years of education, I was the medical director of the 9-11 mental health program at NYU. So I was treating 9-11 survivors, people who are living down there, working down there, rescue recovery. And um, after I left that job, because I really wanted to work with people individually who are like high functioning, people from like all different backgrounds. um, I left, but I stayed at NYU and I still teach a variety of courses to medical students, to residents, um, next generation of psychiatry. But one of the things that I also love doing is public speaking. So I started talking on first radio, medical conferences, and then all of that led to television. So for the last 15 or 20 years, I've kind of been the morning mental health contributor to the Today Show and Good Morning America and CBS Mornings. And that's such an interesting and creative and very different part of what I do. But the reason I went into psychiatry and when I went in, it was not popular at all. And like not that many people from my class went into it and they would be like, why? Like, you're normal-ish, you know, like, why would you go into psychiatry? Because there was a stigma that like, you had to be crazy Mm -hmm. or something. (laughs) And um, you were going, who else would want to work with, you know, and like, now it's like, everyone wants to talk about mental health. So like, I wanted to help decrease that stigma. um, And, you know, spread the word and give people education, give them tips. So like, now I've learned the the art of the 30 second soundbite of like, how to improve your life. And they're like, go Sue. And I'm like, I have 20 years of experience to give you. And they're like, no, 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 30 seconds, please. So that's a, you know, it's, it's an art form that you learn over time. So I had some other questions planned, but I just need to know this. Why do you think psychiatry has gone from something that was so stigmatized, something that was so like embarrassing and shameful, and now you can go walk onto the subway and you'll hear people making jokes and be like, oh, my therapist told me, or like my psychiatrist yeah. told me. Like, why do you think it's become such a common, fun topic in our society? I- 
I think, you know, I think it's generational and I think that it's related to social media because like, you know, so much of the talks that I did was pre-social media. Like it was like, in, yeah. you know, like oh, three or four or five. And then I saw, I think with TikTok, I think that changed everything. Like, yes, Facebook, Instagram, but that was mostly like family. You're like, look at me, how hot I am on Instagram. But then <laughs> with TikTok, you have actually like, like these sound bites and education and people like normalizing and being vulnerable and having pride in in struggling and being like, yeah, I struggle too, but like, I'm here for you. Like, this is what I did. What do you do? And like providing snippets of education. I know like there's a lot of stuff about toxic positivity and narcissism and like certain mm-hmm. things take off my intrusive thought made me, I don't know, push the elevator button 20 times, but it can be funny. It can be like anxiety relieving. And like, it's a community building to like make fun of ourselves, like self-deprecating humor. Um, and we can all relate to it. So I feel like that really changed and advanced us. And then, and then the pandemic, the fact that we were all so stuck, so isolated, needed community, and we're struggling. And that is another thing that I saw that like literally March 2020, I remember getting called in a lot to the studios. I was at NBC like five or six times on March 13th, Friday the 13th, when everything was like shutting down. And they everyone wanted to talk about mental health. So mental health went from, and I can just look at the number of times that I was called from like, okay, maybe a couple of times a month, maybe a couple of times a year to all day, every day. And and then the producers were the one, because before it was like this special topic, you know, and yeah. then it was like, the producers were like, I'm stuck at home with my children. My husband is driving me crazy. I need a five minute consult before the pre-interview, you know? So like, I think all of us for the first time, we're like, we have to talk about this because we're all struggling and suffering together mm-hmm. alike, you know? Because normally it was like other people's problems. Oh, you lost right. your parent. Oh, I'm sorry for you. Now it was like, we're all in it. So like, even if I was doing interviews with someone in Nepal or England, like no one, it was unspoken. We just looked at each other. We're like, you too. Yep. You know? So mm-hmm. I think that those shared experience. Really, yes, exactly. I love that. So I feel like in my group of friends, there are certainly people who are more on the spectrum of glass half full, and then there are folks Mm. who are glass half empty. Mm -hmm. Why do some people naturally just feel more optimistic and other people feel naturally more pessimistic? Great question, Vivian. And you know, what I learned, so, you know, optimism wasn't anything that they teach you about in medical school. And I got super fascinated by this, actually, when I was working with the 9-11 survivors, because some of them were just like helping other people, never took a sick day. And then they went through the same experiences, losing loved ones, losing their job, getting caught in like the dust and the rubble and seeing bodies. And it was very painful. And so I was like, what is the difference between the glass half empty and the glass half full? Is it something that you're born with that you just naturally have? And what I found in the research was that there are some people who are born with optimism, that optimism is genetic and they're actually Mm. gene. It's the oxytocin receptor gene that basically codes for optimism for oxytocin. And oxytocin, as you know, is like a cuddle hormone, bonding hormone, yeah. sexual orgasm, friendship, mother, baby. So that that receptor gene, like if you have a certain code for it, you are optimistic. And what I learned was it's you're not screwed if you're not born with it. Yes, you have a natural tendency for pessimism. Yes, you will naturally have a tendency for depression. So that's helpful to know that like, oh, I might be hardwired this way. But this is why I then went on this mission of like, I need to write a book, I need to understand, I need to go deep in the research is that even if you aren't born with that gene, you can act like an optimist. And that's what practical optimism is about is acting like one because those genes, actually coded for specific skills of community building, asking for support, having a positive mindset, um, coping mechanisms, being able to like, you know, regulate your emotions. And that's what I did as a therapist. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm already doing so many of these skills. I didn't realize that I was actually helping people 
become optimistic. I thought I was just helping getting them like undepressed. So you're right. There are going to be people who are skewed, but like those glass half empty types be like, you know what? Like there's something you can do. You can actually practice not only looking at things in a certain way, but then doing things differently as well. Mm, I love that. We got to talk about some perfect duos, the Ben and Jerry's, SpongeBob and Patrick's and peanut butter and jellies of the world. But what about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders? stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash richbff, all lowercase. Go to Shopify shopify.com slash rich bff now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash rich bff you talk about you know helping people practice optimism instead of just being undepressed what is the difference you have a book coming out it's called practical optimism what what is the difference between that practical optimism versus just the traditional or colloquial definition of optimism yes So the traditional definition is like what we call like dispositional um, optimism that you're born with it and you naturally Mm. have it. And we all know people who are just like, no, don't worry about it. You know, just look on the bright side. And, you know, part of that can get really annoying because you're like, I'm so happy for you that that's how you see the world. It's like always going to work out. And actually, that is the definition is someone who imagines the best possible outcome almost always. Of course, optimists have, believe it or not. Vivian, an equal number of negative life events and stressors as pessimists. So it's not like the pessimists have had a harder life, right? Like I'm not putting aside trauma, right? (laughs) Putting aside those who went through maybe like the big T of trauma, right? Like life-threatening events, right? The little T are the everyday hassles. All of us, optimists, pessimists, we all have the same number. The difference is that optimists just envision the best possible outcome. And the beauty is when you envision the best possible outcome, you're more likely to achieve it. Why? Because you're taking steps towards it. Yep. Okay. So wait, sorry. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So when you're envisioning the best possible outcome, right? This is not, I'm not talking about magical thinking, right? I'm not talking about the Dululu. Like you're not crazy. You're actually working towards your implementing. And that's what the, these eight steps of practical optimism about is like, it starts out with their eight Ps. It starts out with having a purpose. So you get really focused. You get really deliberate and intentional. The purpose can be capital P in like, what's my purpose in life? Or it could be my, what's my purpose for you, Vivian? And like, okay, with this book sales thing, right? Like with the book launch, like what's my purpose and getting very specific about wanting a specific outcome. And then you follow this trajectory of all the other Ps of like, okay, 
if I get really upset and if I need to regulate my emotions, so processing the emotions, then problem solving. So then it gives you eight steps towards that, getting really present, developing proficiency, which is self-efficacy, like your belief and your confidence in your abilities, not your actual mm. abilities. And then the last P is practicing healthy habits, which lead to like longer life, but not just longer life, but healthier life. So the difference is like regular optimism is like, oh, do you see the glass half full? Oh, not, you know, and then it just leaves you right there. No, I don't. And it's like, okay, then what? Versus practical optimism says, don't worry. I got you, bestie, as Vivian would say. I got your back. I got a plan for you. We got a plan. And then it outlines the steps of like, from let's go from here to there. And like, that's something I realized when I was working with patients that I didn't want to just get them undepressed, right? Because like, that is kind of what you go to a doctor for. Like your doctor, if your elbow or your shoulder is fractured, they're going to put you in a cast and their their hope is to get you back to baseline, right? But what if your baseline sucked? What if you were like yeah. sedentary, yeah. didn't play sports and they're not going to turn you into like a tennis pro and like forehand and backhand, like that's not their job. They're like, you came in with something broken. If you're lucky, at best, after surgery and physical therapy, maybe you'll return to like 70% of normal, of your normal, your baseline. And that's not what I wanted to do for my patients in the psychiatry realm, right? I wanted to like, yes, find out what their baseline was, take them back to that if that's what they wanted. But I wanted to take them beyond because, and, and that's where the, the optimism comes in is helping a person thrive living in their best life zone, not just their baseline zone, because their baseline probably got them to where they are in the depression right now, mm. because they probably were not taking care of themselves. They weren't seeing people in real life. I call them the four M's of mental health, that you, like daily habits that a person can do every day, mindfulness, movement, mastery and meaningful engagement. So that's just one example, but like I'll do an inventory on a person to be like, tell me about every aspect of your life. What does your friendships look like? What does your relationship with your parents look like? What does your diet look like? What does your exercise habit look like? What does your work look like? What does your out of work mastery, like what are you working on for yourself? Development likes. And and so they're like, I got more than I bargained for because I just came in with a depression and I just thought you were just going to make me like not sad anymore. But I was like, no, I want you to thrive. And so they get more than they bargain for. And that's where there's like a little bit of a coaching element, you know, and I, I just felt like traditional therapy in the way that I was trained just didn't prepare me for like helping people thrive because that's what Western medicine does, right? It just fixes mm -hmm. what's broken and it's very disease focused, unfortunately. And this is looking at practical optimism combines illness and disease based thinking, but also strength based thinking so that it's got you, it can protect you, it can help you when you're really down. So if you're depressed, I'm not going to tell a person stop going to therapy. I'm going to say, keep going to therapy, but use this book for life. You know, I got a book when I was like 16, a friend gave me, it's called Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. And I've literally kept it by my bedside and just read a couple of pages whenever I need it. So it helps you when you're really down, but then it helps you maintain feeling really good. And then it helps you thrive to take it to whatever your life goal is, you know, and you're living it like, I mean, like you're such a great life role model and example for people to, to thrive. I mean, I know right now you're going through a lot of stress and, and it's hard. It's hard. Even if you're an optimistic pers person in the midst of challenge, it's normal for all of us to have the self-doubt, to have, to, to have all of those fears, but it's really supposed to help you support you at every, every level. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to definitely uh, take advantage of the fact that I have you right now and get some free therapy. So like you mentioned, <laughs> um, my book, you know, I, I just launched it and starting Friday, I'm actually going on tour. Well, I guess by the time this episode releases, I'll have already been on tour, but tour is going to be a little crazy. I'm in a different city. 
every single day. I have a live show. I've never done a live show before. I'm obviously a little bit stressed about that. I've done the prep work. I have the outline. I have all these things. But are there, you know, you mentioned the four M's, but like, what are three or four actionable pieces of advice that you have for me on the road in a strange random city hotel that I probably don't know that well? Um, That's not true. A couple of cities like are like second homes to me. But even so, like, what can I do to like maintain my sanity, but also like make sure that I don't burn out? And don't feel really yes. sad about the whole process. Yes. So, you know, so it's very interesting because burnout, when we look at it, there's like a couple of main features. One is like cynicism. So I'm so glad you use that word because it's this idea of like everything I'm doing, like, is it going to be for naught? Is it going to, is it going to have impact? Oh my God. I think that all the time, Sue. Really? All the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if this is like for nothing? It's not for nothing, you know, because because Vivian, I can just tell you, you bring so much hope to people. You give you give people choices. You give people action, actionable steps. You're so authentic and so real. And I think that people connect with you, with your humor, with your vulnerability, and they see like how hard you work. I see how hard you work. So I feel like the cynicism self like impact, right? So that's part of burnout. Like it's exhaustion. It's feeling tired. So I'll tell you tips for that in a second, but it's feeling like, does my work have any meaning? Does it have any impact? Like, what am I doing this for? Is it going to, so I feel like one of the things I learned when I was growing up and I struggled with this, I grew up in in an Indian family and um, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's these Sanskrit verses and it says, don't be attached to the fruits of your labor. Like do your duty for the sake of it. And whatever happens, mm. like it's kind of like icing on the cake. And that's so hard because in Western culture, we're ambitious. We work hard. We we want a specific outcome. And if you're like very numbers yeah. oriented, you, you're you going to judge your success by, I don't know, how many I tickets am. are bought, right? Like how many books are sold. So it's really hard to to separate that and to not consider yourself like a failure if you didn't meet that goal. And especially if you're if high 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 achieving people, very hard on themselves, as you know, right? And and relentless in their expectations. So I think, you know, being able to separate and say, if I can appreciate that this journey that I'm, you're giving so much hope and meaning to people because you're like, this girl is a badass. Like she's doing like a multi, like you're like Taylor Swift of the, of the money world, you know, like you're going- Oh my on- gosh, that's so generous. <laughs> like you're going on tour, like people are home, Vivian. They're like in their sweats. They're like, I just want to, you know, sit here and watch rerun of Friends or like, I don't know, whatever. And you're taking the show on the road, right? Like you're not, you're entertaining people from home that they can scroll, but then they can see you in real person, like in real life. And like, if like when people like look up to you, they're going to want to meet you. They're going to want a piece of you in person. So they're going to be so grateful. So like recognizing, envisioning the best possible outcome. You're going to be signing books, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So though I know it's going to be exhausting, so I'm going to get to the exhaustion, but just knowing and envisioning the best possible outcome. So think of like your perfect day, if you have such an option. Like, so I would say like having the end in mind and then working backwards to be like, what would my per- per- perfect day? Do I have time for a great cup of coffee by myself in the morning? So this is where I want the rest to come in. And I just, um, it came, it was in the New York Times yesterday. I talked about Oasis Moments. The New York Times has a six day energy challenge, how to get more energy. And um, I helped them kick it off by talking about Oasis Moments, which are basically just five minutes. And it can be anywhere, like you could have music, but you don't have to. But it's the idea of just getting very intentional with your time, shutting the world out. And this part didn't make it into the New York Times because they wanted to keep it briefer. But I, in that exercise that I had originally given them, it was like, okay, see yourself 
close your eyes, envision a problem, be very specific. How does a problem make you feel? Tell me like, where do you feel it in your chest? Are you clenching your jaw, shoulders? Relax all of that. And then envision a path to the outcome and imagine yourself. And, and even if you want, when you're done, do this, you know, if you have five minutes later in the day, yeah. close your eyes and envision this path and tell me what this path looks like. Is it straight? Does it twist? Does it turn? Is it windy? And then envision the best possible outcome. So what, what is that for you, Vivian? Like if you have one of your tour dates, what is your best? What does that look like? Tell me like, what do you imagine if everything worked out? But before we get into that, taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last year, I've been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel energized, nourished, and ready to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's so powerfully simple. I started taking it because I noticed I needed a little bit more nutrient support than I used to, especially when I'm traveling, especially when I'm working. But AG1 covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food source nutrients. I know if I drink it daily, I'm going to feel that extra boost. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1, try AG1, and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash rich BFF. That's drinkag1.com slash rich BFF. Check it out. If I had my exact way, um, this tour stop would be totally sold out. You know, it would be a packed house. I would put on a show that you know, people laughed at my corny jokes and clapped for me when appropriate. And when we turned it over to the audience Q&A, I got really vulnerable stories, really insightful questions that applied to more than just one person. And I answered them in a way that I could personally feel really proud of and feel like I was helping people. And then once the show is over, you know, big applause and we go to the meet and greet. I'm signing books, giving hugs, shaking hands, you know, taking photos. And I want everyone to walk away from this event feeling like it was money well spent and time well spent. That's amazing. And like, it was so beautifully and succinctly put. And that's exactly what you would do in this exercise. And you've done it. It is envision the best possible outcome. And, and I want you to feel the feeling. So how are you feeling? Like, let's just say you're coming off of this high and me and you are talking and I'm like, how are you feeling right now? Like this, you've had this incredible day. Everyone's cheering for you. They're hugging you. They're signing. They're like, thank you so much for coming out here. This means so much to us. We've been following you forever. And you just gave me hope. And I feel like I feel like I've been your friend. You helped me get through, you know, years and years. I'm struggling financially. I've made some better decisions because of you. Thank you so much. So I'm talking to you now. How do you feel? I feel warm. Like there's like this almost like internal glow that happens. And I know that's not like an, an emotion, but it's like this like it's almost like I feel how the color gold looks. Wow. It's radiant. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. So hold on to that. That that will be your your imagery. When you close your eyes, right? Like I just want you to feel that warmth and that radiance and you're emanating that. So I want you to envision that, that I am up here on stage in your moments of feeling tired, of self-doubt. Close your eyes and feel that warmth. Allow yourself to get enveloped with that warmth and that radiance and say, you know, that's what I'm here to do. I have a mission. I have a purpose. I'm I'm providing knowledge 
wisdom, compassion, and hope in what I'm doing. I really like that exercise. Thank you. Like you're providing, you're, you're, it's a, you're providing a service that's really needed. And it's, it goes beyond Vivian, like your book. Cause I think we need, we need people to look up to. We need hope. We need that to know that there's good in the world. We need to know that people care for us. Like it's, it's very clear that you're doing what you're doing more than just, it's more than just about you and your brand. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't come across as self-serving. It comes across as like, I know information that can change your life. So please listen to me, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. that if you can see it from that point of view, that the end in mind is you've provided service and, and people's lives are going to be changed and different because of you and that you already have impacted them and they're coming out to meet you. So if you look at from it from that point of view, regardless, I mean, I'm sure things will be sold out. I'm sure the book is going to do great. I'm sure people are going to read it. But that middle part of your labor, you know, the, the, all of that is the fruits of the labor, but the work that you're doing, the meaning and the impact is right there. Yeah. Hmm. That actually makes me feel a lot better. Like I feel really reassured by you saying that. And now I see why people, people love coming to you. That, that did make me feel really good. Uh, definitely less sad, but also, you know, with a very bright view towards the future. No, because you know what, Vivian, like I can say this to you because it, it, it's never a one size fits all approach, right? Like I can say to you because I, I followed your work, right? And I know how hard you work and I, I can see the impact that you're having, right? If it was someone else, I wouldn't just say it's all going to work out, right? I would then say to them, let's say, you, we met, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And you're like, I have a vision, right? Let's say I didn't know anything about you. And whenever you started, let's say we met at that point, then it would be a different conversation. Then it would be like, all right, how, what are you going to do to get your ducks in the row? And like, how are you going to execute and implement? Right. So it would never just be like, you're going to do great, pat you on the back and then move you along your way. I know you've come this far. The book is already out, right? It's already doing great. Mm -hmm. So that's why I can say what I say, which is at this point, the focus isn't on like what needs to be done. It's more on how you feel. And so that you can be calm. And I want you to get as much rest as possible. I know that sounds crazy, but like whenever, even if it's like a room, one thing I did, I, I gave a big keynote speech recently and they had me do press interviews right before I was going to go on and give this like a 60 minute talk and like no slides and like everything had to be memorized. And I look back and I'm like, I think things could have been a little bit different because I felt tired, like giving what felt like a speech it was like multiple, multiple press, like coming from different directions. So just looking at your schedule and be like, does this make sense? How do I get quiet in the room beforehand? And and it's okay to say like, listen, do you mind if I just take a few minutes? And even if you can't meet up with people in those cities, like I don't know if you had planned to, you know, see those, you said second home, you know, second homes to you. So being very intentional about the rest, that's going to be key mm. in this tour that you're doing. I'm going to have to schedule in time to rest. It's a tough one. And not just sleep, but like daytime rest, which is what I talked about yeah. in this Welch moment when New York Times is these oasis moments, which you can do anywhere, like on your flight or on the bus or whatever, closing your eyes and just saying like, I've done my work. You know, like in medical school, we would take a billion exams and always like the day before I'm somebody who would just like have fun. You know, I'd be like, I've done mm. my duty. Like, I'm not going to cram. Like I'm going to go out. I'm going to see a movie. Like I'm going to go out to eat. I'm going to relax. And that I always felt like there was something to be said about that because it, if you had truly done the work, because I had friends who like would always party and it was un, not until the last minute, like that expression, if it wasn't until the last minute, nothing would get done. There, that was different. I would always try to do work in advance so that I could relax. And what it would signal to me is I'm ready. It signals, hey, you're taking a day off before the exam. You must be done. 
you know, and the confidence. This is what I talk about in the book is a proficiency, self-efficacy. It's your confidence in your abilities. It's not your actual abilities, which you have tons of, Vivian. So the, the confidence is in the confidence, the recharging, the rest. That's all that's needed right now. It's minimal. So I do want to pivot really quick to a different topic. I have no idea what the source is from, but I read somewhere that this research team did a study where they were showing photos of rich people and people who grew up low income and essentially having a group of all different walks of like people of all different walks of life. So maybe they themselves had a lot of money or didn't or whatever, but people were actually able to identify the people who grew up who with means versus those who did not because the people who had money, even with their resting face when they weren't smiling, they looked happier. And my question for you is one, is that true? And two, like, how do you think optimism and money, wealth, finance are related? It's so interesting. Um, you know, the, 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 the relationship between optimism and wealth is that optimistic people. And I want to be careful in how I phrase this because there's a dangerous type of optimism. And we call that the ostrich effect where you're just burying your head in the sand and you're like, everything will be fine. And this is the person who's got cancer and is like, no, I'm not going to go for chemotherapy. It'll just disappear by itself. Right. Or like the doctor was like, oh, there's something concerning on your annual exam. So there are a subset of people who are excessively like toxic optimism where mm-hmm. they bury their head in the sand. So that's not what I'm talking about. And the other, on the other hand, pessimists are actually more realistic and are more accurate in their assessments. But optimism is linked to more wealth, more productivity, more likability in the job, more engagement in the job. They're, they have better bonuses because from every, from every perspective, they're team players, they're giving, they ask questions, they don't stop, they work towards taking chances and risks, and they see things through. Whereas a pessimist might say, you know, this is never going to work out. Why would I take this business opportunity? I don't trust anyone. This person is coming to me, they can't be trusted. And and I get it, like, we should be like, a little bit vigilant, do our due diligence, ask questions, do the research. But pessimists never make it that far because they write off tons of opportunities. They won't ask for the promotion Mm. because they think that they won't get it. So there's so many, it's not just woo-woo. Like that's why when I said to you, like practical, having positive outlook actually leads to positive outcomes. It's because of all the things in between, which is the risk-taking, the doing the research, the asking for the help, the being more personable, more affable. You know, optimists have longer lasting friendships. They're more likely to have friendships from childhood. They're more likely to have more number of friends than pessimists do. So I definitely see the connection and that's like, you know, kind of well-known, the optimism and wealth. Um, And then your question about in terms of like looking at people's faces, that's very interesting to me that you can see who's had money. And I wonder if, you know, that there's a certain amount of struggle that we wear on our faces, you know, or confidence, you know, of like, things are going to be okay. And I've, I've had money my whole life. And like, so that that's very unique to me that they can judge just by assuming that everything else in the picture was the same right like dress yeah. and yeah yeah no it was just like neck yeah. up so like you couldn't see like clothes or like car or like anything like that it was literally yeah. just a bot I remember reading about this in like my like one of my college psych classes that I took um they would basically like just do a frame of the person's face and you could tell based on their faces people at varying ages people at varying genders colors whatever like you could tell who had money and who didn't. 
And I thought that was crazy. Yes. And it was like the people who had money that were more accurate in being able to pick others who had money. No, I don't, I don't know if that was ever a finding just that I thought it was interesting that even without any other like socioeconomic indicators, like how they dress, maybe their hairstyle, anything like that, like you could just look at this part and we're not talking about people who had like a ton of plastic surgery or like Botox and like stuff like that done. But like, you know, just looking at someone's natural resting face and being able to tell if they've had an easy or a hard life basically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's fascinating. And I can see that. I mean, I think, I think there's something to be said there, but you know, I also want to caution people to say that like a little bit of struggle is good, you know, just Mm. a little bit that there, you know, the whole thing about pressure making diamonds, like we don't need to have that much pressure because I think that, you know, like when we just looking at the word stress, like Vivian, what comes to your mind when I say stress? What do you think of? Feeling like I have so much work that I don't have enough hours in the day to get it done. Yes. So there's like a negative connotation. So yes. But the interesting thing is stress in itself, it doesn't tell us anything. It just means that there is a load on the system. But what is that load? It could be a good load, right? It could be like a birthday party that you're planning that you're mm-hmm. really excited about. It could be a promotion. Oh, that you yeah. Really nice. it, right. So when it comes to stress, we actually have to qualify because there's two different terms. You stress, EU stress, it's one word or distress and you stress are positive things and distress are like the negative, either something negative happening or just too many, maybe positive things all happening at the same time that are making it very difficult or challenging. Like if you're juggling, okay, there's like, you know, a wedding, there's a funeral that you have to plan. There's like 10 different things, some good, some bad, but the quantity is too much or that your coping mechanisms, the inside can't match with what's going on in the outside. And that's why like two different people can handle the same situation very differently based on their coping mechanisms, past experiences, past trauma, whatever. But I think that we just put such a negative connotation on stress or hardship. And when I think about like my own life, and we don't have time to get into it, but like, you know, from a very young age, my parents have told me like, you know, I'm sharing this because this you're the money person you know, my parents told me at 11, they were like, you know, if you're going to want money, you're going to have to work for it. And like, I got my first job at 11 and then worked my entire life, like worked, paid my way through college, medical school, tons of debt, you know, and paid it all off. And it was like significant, you know, and I think about, I'm like, when I look back, I joke with my dad, I was like, why, you know, I was living in New York city and I moved at 16 to go to college. I skipped my senior year. And I remember just like being broke, like always, but like always having four jobs, being pre-med, working 40 hours a week. And I was like, why did you do that to me? Like you could have afforded to like help. We have these conversations now. And he's like, Sue, you wouldn't be the person you are today if I had just handed you things. And it makes sense to me because I look back and I'm like, I look at all the hardship and I met so many interesting people through those jobs. I got to know New York City, every different corner from you know, the tip of the bottom, you know, the bottom to the top. And, and all of that hardship, I do think that because I don't come with a sense of entitlement, I'm not expecting things to work out, but not in a pessimistic way. I'm just like, if it works out, great. But I also know that I've had the best four years of my life, let's say in undergrad when I was like broke and in medical school and I traveled and, you know, I just, so my point is that I think a little bit of hardship and stress teaches you that it's okay to have delayed gratification. And I feel like that's the biggest thing that's missing when we talk about like a mental health crisis in young people today Mm. is that we are flashing images of like, you want this, except not giving them context of, you know, the Birkin, you know, I loved your video, by the way, on Kim Kit, you were talking about the $185,000. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, for context, and for perspective, that is less than 0.1%, whatever of her income. 
And I love that because we're seeing images and young people wanting luxury items without knowing the context of how hard even someone like, you know, the Kardashians and like how in the joke is like, she's like, nobody wants to work. And you know, there's something to that, like, maybe not that harsh, but there's truth to the fact that like, yeah, none yeah. Of, it's great if you have a trust fund, but it's okay to struggle as well. Can I ask you, do you think you can buy happiness? I feel like I want to hear your opinion on this question. So first I would say define happiness. Mm. I knew you're going to flip this question back on me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I would just, I, I, like, I mean it in the most traditional sense of like how this question is normally asked. So, like, does money buy happiness? I think like yeah. happiness is basically feeling like all of your needs are met and, you know, you have joy for the primary, like the vast majority of your life, I would say, like good positive yes. feelings about your life. Yes. So I love that. And I love, and so what I would just say is separate happiness from joy, because you can have good positive feelings oh. about your life. Because happiness, the way that I understand it, have come to understand it, is it's a little bit more fleeting. And it's often related to external um, means. So like, if I have money, I'm happy. If I don't, I'm not happy or external achievement, validation, external success. Whereas joy is something that you cultivate inside through meaning and through purpose. Did I give, did I have impact? Did I make people around me happy? Do I feel loved? Do I feel like I matter? Do I feel like I belong? But even if we're, if we're just trying to keep it really simple, happiness, I think, buys convenience, which is really important. It buys options. It can create agency because I'm just thinking about like, if you don't have money, you might be stuck in a relationship, whether it's a child depending on a parent or depending on a spouse, you're dependent. You don't have freedom. You don't have authenticity. You don't have agency. And so that's where I feel like the simplest way that money gives power through options. I don't yeah. have to be in this relationship. I don't have to live in this way. The other thing is that money buys is healthcare, right? And it can buy you, that's the difference between life and death. It can buy you a gym yeah. membership, it can buy you a personal trainer, it can buy you nutritious, healthier foods, because we know that those are more expensive. It can buy you childcare, it buys you time. And, and if you ask me the one thing that I want to translate my money into right now, it's in time. Like, you yeah. know, a friend of mine came the other day and it's our, you know, summer home and she was staying with her family and she's got a bunch of kids and she's like, I, we're making such a mess. Like, you know, like, what can we do? Can we give you money? And I'm like, I don't need money right now. I need time. Because I was in the middle of my writing my book and I was like, I want to buy, how can I buy time? You know, and yeah. so I was like, don't worry, I'm going to use like, you're my guest. So don't worry about it. But she wanted to contribute in some way. I'm like, I'm going to use my money to get a cleaner, you know, because like growing up, I was very much of this idea that like, I had to do everything myself. Yeah. And so the idea like getting a cleaner as like, we didn't have one as a kid, like I was the cleaner because my parents would be like, you want money, like clean the house and, yeah. you know, do the chores. And I know people have ideas about that. Like you shouldn't make pay your kids for chores, but that was the only way there was ever going to be money, like an allowance. And it's like, you know, before we could get a job outside at 14. So, uh, you know, to me, those were luxuries and time is time affluence. And I talk about that in the book that that's the most important thing. So I feel like if you're, if I'm going to spend money, if I have a choice between, you know, a bag or spending money, you know, I, ideally you want to be in a place where you can do both. I want to buy a right. bag and I need that and I want to be able to afford help. But if I had to pick, I, my money always goes to experiences because I feel like those are the things that last mm -hmm. the most. So my husband, when I was dating him, we were in medical school, bought me a bag that at that time I thought was very expensive. And I, if it didn't feel right to me, I said to him, all I really want is a trip to go with my girlfriends, you know, to Miami. And so he was, I was like, can you return the bag? And I'm like, the ticket was half the price 
of the bag, you know, and, and for that, for us, it was a lot of money back then, you know? And I was like, yeah. I feel bad. I wanted to, I was like, I feel weird having a bag that's more expensive than the money I actually have to put in the bag. You know, right. I'm like, uh, so that's weird. Like you're walking around with a, with a bag that, that you have no business because you don't actually have the money in it. Like, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And what I want is experiences. And he's like, you're weird. He's like, I'll get you both. I was like, no, I don't, I, you know, and so that's something I struggle with is like accepting gifts and allowing people to spoil me because like I, I didn't grow up being spoiled. So like, yeah. I just have a thing in my mind that maybe it's an immigrant, like my parents are immigrants. I was born here, that mentality. But, but anyway, so for me experiences, if I had a choice, I would always choose to, to, to do that. So in terms of money buying happiness, it can buy options and choice and time. And if that brings you happiness and experiences, then I would, then mm. I would say yes. I like that. Okay. So to kind of wrap us up a little bit here, um, I feel like, you know, like we talked about in talking about mental health, I feel like the idea of like optimism and positivity and like mindfulness has really taken off in the last decade or so. And, you know, talking to you, obviously so much of it is steeped in science and psychology and legitimate science, but there's a lot of naysayers out there calling it woo woo and, you know, calling it fake and, you know, fairy dust, what have you. What's your take and what, like, how would you address that? Yeah. So, you know, I was interviewed a few years ago about like manifesting and I was like asked like, you know, like similar question, do you believe in it? And I would say, if you're willing to not only put out positive energy out in the world and envision a best possible outcome, but you're willing to work for it, there's nothing to me about that because that is the prescription right. for success is you have to first envision the best possible outcome, have the best possible outcome and the end in mind, and then work backwards and say, how do I actually do that? To me, that is super realistic. And then to also look at and anticipate obstacles. So whether it's like something really simple, like starting a new habit, like an exercise habit, okay, well, what would get in the way? Oh, well, you know, I need, a, you know, the distance. So like if someone's like, my my gym is actually like an hour away, that's never going to happen, right? So yeah. you plan for that to say, I have to pick something closer. Or if it's 5am, and guess what? You're not a morning person. That's not happening. You know, yeah. or, or childcare, like I got to pick up my kid from school. That's not happening. So envisioning all of those things and then like solving for them. But um, I'm so like this book, I it's this 300 something pages. I think I'd written 3000. I like four years of my life, like hiding in a basement, locking myself up. I have two kids, like I have a full-time job. I'm doing TV. I teach. I did not have time doing this. I like literally because I was doing so much research. Anything I said, every sentence in that book is backed up with at least 10 articles in JAMA and like mm -hmm. internal you know, medicine, neuroscience. So I'm a hundred percent skeptic of anything that's like, you know, woo woo. So there's not nothing in here that I wouldn't recommend that I actually haven't worked, seen work with my patients in my own life or, you know, deep in the science. But there really is like optimism is like, you can actually see and functional, functional MRIs different areas of the brain light up with optimism and pessimism. So you can ask someone to envision something good happening, like something like imagine like the best possible thing happening either in your life or somebody else's or envision something really bad. And you can see different neural circuitry light up in the brain. And specifically like in the frontal lobes, like people who are very pessimistic, there's a lot of ruminating or something called the default mode network where your mind is just like excessively wandering. So there's certain key, like neural, what they call neural signatures that happen in the brain. And people who are pessimistic have a certain like mindset, but you can also see by functional imaging that play out in the brain. So that to me, that's very fascinating. And also that these genes 
predict a certain outcome. So like we were talking about the oxytocin receptor gene, Mm -hmm. if you have a variant of it, you're more likely to be depressed. So there's actual science behind optimism and pessimism. And that studies show that optimists live longer. I mean, you can't beat that, right? They live on average like 10 to 15% longer, exceptional longevity, which is like good health in your 80s. They have less heart attacks, they have less strokes, they have less death from all causes. Um, And a big part of that is giving back and purpose and people who have who volunteer and give back to the community live longer. So there's tons of science in, in terms of like from the health perspective, from friendships perspective, from partner perspective, optimists tend to have like longer and stronger marital relationships because they're more likely to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. They're more likely to feel supported. If you feel supported by someone, you're more likely to get that support because you're telling them you're doing such a great job. Thank you so much. I mean, obviously, if they're a shitty partner, you want to work on that, go to couples yeah. therapy, go to your own therapy. Yeah. So it's it's not just about saying like you're amazing. And meanwhile, like they're treating you horribly. But um, it's, it is about giving people the benefit of the doubt. And then also optimists know they're realistic. They know when to leave, right? They know what they're worth. And they know that if they're not being treated properly in any scenario, they're going to ask for better. And that's the key thing is like, it teaches you practical optimism is how to be the best advocate for yourself in every arena of life. Love it. Thank you so much for being here with us today. You are a wealth of knowledge, and I feel like I've personally learned so much. Your new book, Practical Optimism, comes out February 20th of this year. Where can readers expect to find it? Where can they find you? Tell us everything. Yes. So you can buy the book wherever it's sold. And if you pre-order it now, you can get um, tons of pre-order incentives, but Amazon, Penguin, Random House, Barnes and Nobles, everywhere. And um, people can find me on um, Instagram. So I'm Dr. Sue Varma, the word doctor written out, D-O-C-T-O-R, Sue Varma. And then also my website, and I have blogs all about all sorts of different things, holiday stress, um, habits, intrusive thoughts, everything that you can imagine. So I hope that I get to keep in touch with your listeners and with you, Vivian. I'm so excited for you and your book launch. And I want to hear when you come back, how did it go? Did you did you feel like gold? Were you getting wrapped yeah. up and doing the extra day? <laughs> I want to hear all about it. So thank you. And I, and I love everything that you do. And I hope, and I, and I know that people will get value, but I hope that everyone comes out and, you know, grows and it's a splashing sensation that, that I know it will be, but I, I hope that everything comes exactly how you want it. Thank you so much. You're the best. And thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!